Welcome to the Two Journeys podcast. We're so thankful that you've taken the time to join us today and want you to know that this is just one of the many resources available to you for free from Two Journeys Ministry. If you're interested in learning more, just head over to twojourneys.org. Now, on to today's episode. This is episode four in the book of 1 Peter entitled Submission to Authority, where we'll discuss 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. I'm Wes Treadway, and I'm here with Pastor Andy Davis. Andy, what are we going to see in these verses that we're looking at today? Well, Peter is writing to believers in the world, uh, in Satan's world system, who he calls aliens and strangers, to give them guidance on how they are going to deal with some pretty adverse circumstances. Uh, In this section today, we're even going to talk about uh, submitting to governing authorities that don't believe the word and submitting to harsh masters in the master-slave relationship back then in Peter's day, uh, who are harsh and inconsiderate and, and evil even. How do you function? And so God's word has not left us as orphans. He tells us fundamentally the strategy is that we are going to seek by doing good to silence the ignorant talk of foolish people who don't understand Christianity. So the idea, the strategy is to live such a good life in front of a pagan audience that they might have a desire to follow Christ. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Very good. Well, I'll go ahead and read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 25. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Andy, as we begin, is there a connection between verse 12 that we discussed at the end of our last episode and verse 13 where we start in this passage? Sure. In verse 12, he says, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they may accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. And then he tells uh, them next to submit for the Lord's sake to authorities. And so the reason, the, the whole strategy is giving here in this epistle is that our good works shine as a light and attract people to God. Uh, as Jesus said, you are the light of the world, speaking to his disciples. Uh, no one lights a lamp and puts it under a bowl. Instead, he puts it up on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the, in the house. In the same way, uh, let others see your good deeds 
so that they may glorify God, uh, you know, on Judgment Day. And so the desire here is uh, is consistent. So there's a, a strong link between people who misunderstand Christianity, but then they watch your good deeds and watch how you live. Then they say, okay, that's what Christ is all about. So this passage is striking to me in a number of places, and I would imagine it is for many who read Peter's words here. Based on verses 13 and 14, uh, why does God delegate authority to sinful human beings, and to what authorities are Christians to submit? Yeah, so first and foremost, we just need to understand that that happens, that that all authority comes from God. Mm. So authority, I believe, is the God-given right to command. All right, so parents have authority over their children. So teenagers understand the big difference between their peers who have no right to command, Hmm. but give advice. And so there's a big difference between advice and a command. When parents uh, tell their kids what to do, they're giving commands, they're not giving advice. Sometimes parents give advice. But you know, when when I tell one of my kids to do something, I have the God-given right to command them. I have no such right over your children, over anybody else's, but I do over my own children. So authority is the God-given right to command. Um, I think we need to understand that that it flows right from the throne of God throughout all of his uh, his created beings, his intelligent created beings. There are mm. archangels and there are angels, and the word arch means ruler. There are ruler angels. Now, the angels have never done anything evil. They've never sinned. Those angels, the, the holy angels, have never done anything wrong, but some are called on to obey other angels. They're, they are ruler angels and there are, are submissive angels. And so I believe in heaven there's going to be authority and submission. It's not a bad thing, but we rebels, we sinners, we fight against authority. Mm. We see bumper stickers that say question authority. We bridle up against people telling us what to do. And (laughs) so these commands can rub us the wrong way. Uh, It can really frustrate, but it's a consistent teaching. Submit for the Lord's sake to every authority that he has established. Now, what we need to understand is how devastating anarchy really is. It is the worst form of government. It's no government. It's really might makes right. It's whatever group can get teenagers with AK-47s together the quickest and impose their will on a community. Anarchy is terrifying. And so East African nations like Somalia and all that have experienced it. It's horrible. So for us, and you think even in some recent events that have happened in American in the American scene, riots. Yeah. Riots are anarchy. There's, there's, there's nothing but evil going on. It's, it's terrifying. And so it's just mindless wickedness. So we need to see, isn't it good how God has set up order and he's made governments and there are lawful governments and they have the right to command. And we, like in Romans 13 and also in this chapter, are called on to submit to those God-ordained authorities and to obey them when we can. Now, there are going to be exceptions that we could talk about, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego Mm. refusing to bow down and worship Nebuchadnezzar's golden idol, and they wouldn't do it. But they were generally consistently submissive to Nebuchadnezzar's commands. So for us, we have to learn how to be delighted to submit to God-ordained authorities, even those that are run by unbelievers. Now, both verse 14 here and Romans 13 that you mentioned a moment ago really talk about the role that governments intended to play Mm -hmm. and how Christians should relate to it. What specifically are we to make of this punishing evil Mm -hmm. and uh, praising good and the role government plays in that and and how we should relate as Christians? Sure, this is almost exactly what 
what Paul says, you know, rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Mm. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right and he will commend you. Yeah. Paul actually said that. Peter says the same thing here. He's going to commend those who do right. And you see that sometimes. It doesn't happen a lot. I don't, I don't know that I've ever received a government commendation. Um, but you see it, you know, people that are, are, are celebrated as heroes mm. uh, who do things at key moments and, and the community gathers around and, and sees, sees them. Even in this, in this COVID era, we, mm. we, we see people that are serving the community that are frequently thanked and commended yeah. by the government on behalf of, of their service, uh, what they've done. So that's the positive side. The negative side is that governors are sent to punish those who do wrong. And so this is, this is a check against the unbridled evil of people's sinful hearts. Uh, society would be a terror if criminals were allowed to run, run amok. Mm. And so lawless people, sin is lawlessness, but people that reach levels of lawlessness where there's terror, uh, you know, in, in my, uh, where I live in Bahama, North Carolina, it's right near a uh, maximum security federal penitentiary uh, in Butner. Imagine if the news came out that the security system had completely failed and those prisoners were running free. Uh, it, it would be a terror. You'd want to, you would get in your car and drive away. Mm. Uh, you'd hope you had a home left when you got back. So that's the kind of terror. So that's conversely how thankful we should be that there are governing authorities that punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Mm. And Peter's motive for Christian submission in this passage, specifically in verse 15, following on the heels of this description of what those governors that are kind of subservient to the emperor, you've got these different levels of authority. Uh, Peter's motive, it seems, is for Christians to be in alignment with the will of God, which mm -hmm. is that by doing good, they should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Right. How does good behavior by Christians put to silence the ignorance of foolish people? Well, let's talk about some of the historical ignorance, okay? Back in the day uh, when Christianity was spreading rapidly in the early first few, uh, few centuries, the backdrop was a pagan government, the Roman Empire. And there were all kinds of scurrilous rumors going around when, as Christianity was exploding and multiplying and mm. growing, uh, that it was a dark, twisted, evil religion and they, they, the, their ignorance was just laughable. Uh, they would take aspects of the Christian life, uh, such as the Lord's Supper, where we would eat the bread and drink the cup, and Jesus said, eating my flesh, drinking my blood, that we were cannibals, we were actually cannibals. And they would talk about love feasts. Well, we understand love feasts completely, well, almost completely spiritual, although there's a physical side to it, where we have actual fellowship. We, you know, uh, extend the right hand of fellowship. We're physically patting people on the back or giving people hugs. And back then we'd greet one another with a holy kiss, those kinds of things. But the love aspect, the love feast was really fellowship. It was just Christian fellowship. But they thought orgies were going on because mm. that's what they did. Right. You know, they're just corrupt, evil people. Mm. They thought that, that we were incestuous because we loved the brothers and sisters in Christ, you know, and it's like, it's weird. All of that was ignorant. It was mm -hmm. ignorant talk. Beyond that, they looked on us as, as <clears throat> excuse me, subversive, that we were trying to topple Caesar. We we're trying to overthrow the Roman Empire. And we were in no way seeking to do that because both Paul and Peter are teaching submission to these governing authorities. Mm. And so that really should have silenced the ignorant talk of the foolish concerning Christianity. 
Now, Americans tend to talk a great deal about our freedom, right? It's Mm -hmm. part of our national heritage, even to the point that Patrick Henry went so far as to say, give me liberty Mm -hmm. or give me death. So Mm -hmm. this talk of submission to authorities is kind of maybe Mm -hmm. running contrary to our own national tendencies when we think about liberty. How would you characterize the limits to Christian liberty? And Mm -hmm. what problems occur in the Christian life when we consider our personal liberty as unlimited and as the highest virtue? Yeah, so that's a very, very good question. You know, I, I would say the, the signal difference between the United States and all of the nations in the United States has had an effect on other nations. But if you think about from 1776 on, it was the matter of personal freedom, that no one could tell you where to go or what to do, et cetera. You didn't have to ask the leave of your Lord. You know, say by your leave, you know, you would leave a room. No, we were free to come and go. And that freedom has been amazing. It's been uh, a remarkable thing. But are there limits to freedom? Are there boundaries to freedom? And Christianity talks about freedom. Jesus said everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. So Jesus himself talked about freedom. But he was talking about freedom from sin. He was not talking about freedom from submitting to a master. Mm. We are made to serve a master. And we're either going to serve God as our master or Christ or we're going to serve sin, Satan, death, that kind of thing. So that servant, there's no escaping serving. Um, The American vision of freedom uh, is the idea of I get to do whatever I want, but that's not the Christian vision of freedom. Um, The Christian vision of freedom is is characterized by uh, the law of God, where it says in Psalm 119, I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. What a great verse that is, Psalm 119. I run in the path path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. So, not free to go wherever you want, we're running in a path. Mm -hmm. You know, a highway of holiness, a highway of righteousness. So think of a a massive freight train. It is free to go on the tracks. (laughs) It is damaging for it to go somewhere else. Yeah. So you can imagine, I think there was a movie called Unstoppable or something like that about a train that had no one in the cockpit and it was going faster and faster and faster and somebody had to get on board Mm. and deal with that. Mm -hmm. Well, it was not okay. It was not cool for that thing to just go wherever it wanted. It was like a nuclear bomb. That that was a level of power. So the idea here is not like that. We are going to run in a track. The freedom of a Christian is the power to do what God wants us to do Mm. as defined by his laws. We are set free from sin to obey. So Peter's saying here, live as free. We are set free from the law as a condemning power. We're not gonna be condemned for our sins. We're free from that. Mm. We're set free from sin, but that doesn't mean we can do whatever we want. Don't use your freedom as a cover up for evil. He said, live as servants of God. So show people what freedom really is. Yeah, so if we get this twisted, we might end up using our freedom just to suit our own ends rather than pleasing God with our lives. Yeah, absolutely. How does the string of commands in verse 17 help explain the Christian's responsibility to authorities in mm-hmm. this world? Okay, so in my translation, it says, show proper respect to everyone, love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, honor the king. So, um, you know, walking through it, show proper respect to everyone means, first of all, just show respect to every human being, period. Uh, people are created in the image of God, even from infancy, their lives are precious, they should be protected and cherished. Human beings are unique 
in the world. So we're going to show just general respect to other human beings as humans. But then there's a certain respect that comes to people because of their position in society. We're going to show honorific titles. We're going to uh, call somebody doctor this or professor that or whatever, um, you know, Mr. President. We're going to use proper titles and show proper respect. We're not going to say, I'm above all that. I'm a child of God. I don't need to treat the king or the queen with proper respect. Go to England and you have an audience with the queen. You know, you're going to be taught what the etiquette is. And if you're you know, a good Christian, you're going to follow the etiquette. And you're not going to say, well, I'm an American. I don't have to do all that. You know, so there, and I think there are differences between being a British subject and being an American citizen. I understand that. So American citizens for years have functioned properly in the presence of the Queen of England. So, you know, we just do that but we still show respect. Sure. And so there's, you know, there's a proper level of respect. So whatever it is, show that proper respect. Don't be a lawless, wild person. Hmm. And then love the brotherhood of believers is, you know, that there's something unique about brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we're, while we're going to show respect to a non-Christian governor, we're going to show respect to a non-Christian emperor. There's going to be a, a, a delight and a cherishing and a, and a love that we see with the brothers and sisters. So hmm. we don't do that with pagan overlords. Uh, we're going to obey them and show proper respect, but there, there's going to be a cherishing of the brotherhood of believers, and that's uh, awesome. And then fear God. That's fundamental. Uh, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and so we're going to live a kind of life of fear of the Lord. We fear sinning. We fear displeasing him. We do not fear his capricious wrath, and we do not fear that he will damn us as believers in Christ. We don't fear that, but we do fear dis disappointing him and disobeying him. So we fear God in that respect, and we fear what God will do if we should sin. We should fear his disciplines, um, so fear God. And then honor the king really goes back to showing proper respect. Um, so we're going to, um, we're going to honor uh, the ruler of the nation and show that. So those, I think, organize what Peter's wanting to say. Now, Andy, in this passage, uh, talks about servants relating to their masters. The issue of slavery is a painful one for modern Christians, given the excesses of certain people who sure. claim to be Christians in, in past history. If we don't believe that these verses can be used to uphold the institution of slavery as 18th and 19th century Americans understood it, mm -hmm. how should we understand Peter's command to slaves in verse 18. All right, that's a complex question. I preached three sermons when I went through Ephesians on the master-slave passages. So the, the primary kind of simple application the most evangelicals take out of this is the employer-employee relationship. So there's going to be people in your work life that have the right to tell you what to do. And I would say just in parenting, one of the most important things you teach your growing kids in elementary school and on is to submit to God-ordained authority because they're going to have a boss someday. Mm -hmm. And if they're lawless type people, it's like, I'm going to do what I want to do. It's like, fine, this is your last day. Go ahead and get your paycheck. You're done. You have to submit to your, your master within the job. Uh, and I think that analogy is good as far as it goes. And so, the, you know, if you want to take that employer-employee idea through this text, you would say, okay, you're going to show your employer proper respect. You're going to obey them. You're going to do it even if they're bad bosses. Uh, as long as they're not compelling you to do something immoral or that violates your conscience, you're going to try to obey them and do what they tell you to do. Mm. Um, and you're not going to be disrespectful. You, you're going to obey the good ones, definitely, but you're going to obey also those that are mean and harsh. You're going to still be submissive. You're not going to gossip or slander. It's the easiest thing to do in a company setting to badmouth the boss. And that's one way you would set, be set apart as a Christian employee is that you just never do that. Mm. 
You know, even the boss's weaknesses and personality and foibles are going to be obvious to everybody. And non-Christians will continually savage the man or woman that's the boss, savage that person behind their backs. They do it all the time. I worked for 10 years in secular employment. They do it all the time. Mm. If a Christian just will not do that and shows proper respect for their employer, that's going to stand out. And I think that flows with the ethics that Peter is giving us here. But that kind of punts on the question. The question is, the real question you want to ask on, on slavery in the Bible is, why isn't the Bible clearly emancipatory? Uh, why isn't it clearly abolitionist? Some people say it is, but it really isn't. Um, Peter and Paul both seek to manage the institution rather than abolish it. And the, the answer to that is more complex than we really could get into, but this is what I want to say that the difference between an employer-employee relationship and a master-slave is the, the legal freedom to walk away, to end the relationship. That I have the ability to say, I don't want to work here anymore. Mm. And that society surrounding that supports that right I have to walk away from my master and no longer be in his employee. That's employer-employee. That is not master-slave. So you are actually bucking against the laws of society to be a runaway slave. And society, even back in Paul's and Peter's day, would have brought you back to your master and made you submit again. So here's the thing. The reason that, that the Bible isn't clearly abolitionist in that regard is because there is an aspect of our vertical relationship with God in which master-slave is the right way to describe it. We have no right to walk away, and we don't get paid for our work. All right? We just have to work. We do what he tells us to do because he is the master. And the reason I know this is that I, the, the word douloi or doulos, which means, you know, sometimes translated servant, but really means slave, is in Revelation 22. It says that up in heaven, in the new heaven, new earth, in the new Jerusalem, that God, the enthroned God will be there and we will see his face and his servants will serve him. Furthermore, Jesus himself is called a servant of God. He is God's slave. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah, but that's gentle language. He's the suffering slave. He did what he was told to do, and he had no freedom to walk away. So it is, a, it is inappropriate for us to say, let's just get rid of slavery, etc., because that is an aspect of our eternal relationship with our heavenly father. But notice that there's also the father-son relationship. He is our adoptive father. There's the king-subject relationship. There's the bridegroom-bride relationship. They're all aspects. Mm. This is just one that's going to be there forever. We do not, will not in heaven have the right to say, I don't want to be here anymore. I'm gone. Well, that was already done. Satan did that and rebellion did that. So we're not going to do that. However, horizontally, human to human, that's a different matter. And what's happened is in providence, in the providence of God, in the unfolding of, of human history, chattel slavery is now illegal all over the world. There's no, no, nowhere on earth where you can legally hold another person to do work for you against their will. Mm. Nowhere on planet earth. And it was Christians and Christianity that led out in that abolitionist fight and were successful. And they did it based on principles of the golden rule, doing to others what you'd have them do to you and loving aspects. So I think that Christianity is subversive to chattel slavery and effectively destroyed it. Yeah. So it's just a moot debating point now to say, why isn't it? It's because Christianity destroyed chattel slavery. Yeah. It did. Now we've got illegal slavery. That's a different matter. 
that's man stealing, that's kidnapping, that's mm -hmm. a different matter, and that's a very bad thing, and Christians are active in that fight as well. Yeah. So Peter and Paul both sought to manage the horizontal institution because it wasn't intrinsically evil, but even with Philemon, he said, you ought to set him free, you ought to release him. <laughs> and he said in 1 Corinthians 7, slaves, try to get your freedom, but if you can't, don't let it trouble you. Very interesting teaching. So it's more than we can even go into here. I think it's simplistic. The things I'm seeing right now, it's simplistic for people to go back and say, because so-and-so was a slaveholder, they were intrinsically an evil person. Mm. That's simplistic. Abraham was a, a slaveholder. David was a slaveholder. Are we gonna not read Jonathan Edwards' books because he was a slaveholder, but we are gonna read David's Psalms? It's, it's just simplistic thinking. We need to think a little bit deeper. So there's a compassion that comes from understanding what it was like, what American chattel slavery was like and how evil it was. Mm. And it was evil because you're not even supposed to speak harshly or deal harshly with your ser your servants, your slaves, because you knew, know that you have a master. So branding them, mm. you know, mutilating them, it was overtly anti-Christian and mm. evil. And in the law, in the Old Testament, if you did that, you should set your slave free. It said, you send him free, life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth is in that section. Shortly after the Ten Commandments, he said, if you should hurt or maim your slave, set him free. Hmm. That's his compensation for what you did to his body. That didn't happen in chattel slavery. Yeah. So it, it, didn't, it was not biblical at all. It was corrupt and evil and wicked. And then beyond that, there was all kinds of hurts and pains that continue to plague our society today. And Christians should be very compassionate about those things. I have about another 50 hours worth of things we could talk about on this one. Absolutely. Well, Peter goes on in verses 19 and 20 to give a reasoning uh, or basis for verse 18. What is the reasoning here that Peter gives mm -hmm. uh, as he's giving this instruction from verse 18? Well, again, it's gonna go back to, by doing good, we will silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. So slaves bearing up under harsh, abusive treatment, even he's saying submit to those, even the ones that are harsh, mm. is really to put Christ on display mm. and to and to put the gospel on display. It, it is commendable for you. It is to your credit if you are unjustly beaten and you bear it patiently. Um, and then he's gonna point to what Christ did. Yeah. What is the significance of the phrase, uh, to this you were called? I mean, mm -hmm. how important, for us as Christians is Christ's example in the daily Christian life as yes. we look at you know 21 through 23 here. So he is, he, he's saying, Peter is saying, you were called to suffer. You were called to suffer for the gospel. And Jesus himself said, aside from the master-slave thing, just in, in general, being Christians, you're going to be arrested mm -hmm. and falsely accused and tried and even put to death. And mm -hmm. the whole thing's unjust. So you have to be willing to bear it patiently and look at the example of Jesus. Now it's so cool. In verse 21, he says, to this you were called, why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow. And here are some really key words, mm -hmm. in his steps. So Christ as our example, that's what Peter's focusing on. Christ suffered, you know, humbly and he did not open his mouth and, and he is our, our example. Now we should know, in church history, the words in his steps were the name of a book written by Charles Sheldon. And out of it comes a phrase that was dominant in evangelical Christianity about 10 years ago mm -hmm. or beyond and still familiar. What would Jesus do? The WWJD thing comes out of Sheldon's book, In His Steps, and the words in his steps comes right out of this text. Mm. And the idea is let's imitate Jesus. Yeah, wow. 
So how then does Christ's sinlessness mm -hmm. make him a perfect example of unjust suffering? Mm -hmm. What does it mean to entrust yourself to the one who judges justly mm -hmm. in times of unjust suffering as we see Jesus do? Okay, so Jesus literally was sinless. And so what was he, what did he do wrong? Hmm. I mean, this thief on the cross said, this man's done nothing wrong. Pilate said it three times, I find no fault in him. He didn't do anything wrong. He committed no sin, but he was our sin-bearing substitute. These are key verses for evangelism. First Peter 2.24 is a key go-to mm. text on the gospel. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. It's worthy of memorization. It's just really good for evangelism. Mm -hmm. It gets, gets a lot of work done in one verse. But what he's saying is that he's a key example, Peter's saying, of what I've been telling you to do bear up under the pain of unjust suffering and don't retaliate, return good for evil, pray for those who persecute you because that's what Jesus did. He committed no sin, he was sinless. And look how he, he behaved. He said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Hmm. And in that way, I think he was instrumental in leading the centurion to Christ. He prayed for, for him and they don't know what they're doing and he was kind on the cross. So um, that's the role model or example Christ has of bearing up under unjust suffering. Hmm. Now you mentioned verse 24 as a really wonderful one verse summary mm -hmm. of the gospel. How does it function in Peter's argument in this section ultimately, as we look even to the last two verses of this chapter? Okay, very, very good question. Um, let me answer that and then circle back to the phrase, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Yeah. So 24 is just a summary of the gospel. It's substitutionary atonement. Jesus suffered, and then you say, well, why did he suffer then? Well, he was our substitute. Mm. He took our sins in his body on the tree. That's substitutionary atonement. He died in our place to the end that we, his followers, might die to sin. That fits into Peter's argument. Do good, not evil. Mm. Slaves don't steal from your masters. If you're stealing from them and you get caught and you get beaten, you deserve it. But if you are just working hard and he's just an unjust, harsh, evil man and just wants to beat you, bear it patiently. Jesus did that too. He committed no sin, but when they hurled their insult at him, he didn't retaliate. When he mm. suffered, he made no threats. So he is the picture of how to carry yourself. But Jesus took your sins into his body and died in your place on the tree so that we might live a holy and righteous life. Now let's go back to that phrase, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He entrusted himself to God. And basically, he knew that there was a lot of injustice being hurled at him. And that was going to get dealt with one of two ways, by his own atoning blood for them. Hmm. So that some of his... His, those hurling insults at him later turned, like the thief on the cross, he began his time on the cross hurling insults at mm -hmm, Jesus mm -hmm. and then changed and now he's in heaven. Today you'll be with me in paradise. His hurling insults at Jesus got paid for by Jesus' blood or by God's wrath on judgment day and eternity in hell. Either way, this thing's gonna get sorted out. <laughs> so we have to do the same. Some unjust, wicked master unjustly beating his slaves, never comes to Christ, gets arraigned before God's justice on Judgment Day, and that's when it really starts, not Judgment Day. Judgment Day is where he hears the verdict. Go to hell or depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Then the justice starts, and the justice is hell. It's not Judgment Day, it's hell. 
for all eternity. And so fundamentally, don't worry about your corrupt, wicked master. He's got far bigger problems. He's under the wrath of God. You ought to pray for that man. You're getting a temporary beating, and by so doing, you're storing up treasure in heaven. You'll have a crown of glory up in heaven. But what about him? He is facing the wrath of God for what he's doing to you. You ought to pray for that man. Mm. That's a, a, a very different perspective. Yeah, these are powerful verses. I just think of how they can be a, a bomb to our soul mm -hmm. in turmoil and tumultuous times, even right now, thinking about the grace that's extended to sinners like us through mm -hmm. Jesus Christ, but then also the attitude it can give us toward those who are under the just judgment of God apart yeah. from Him, that we would pray for them and, and seek to see them saved. Yeah, and it's one of the points of the book I wrote on, on, on heaven that's going to come out this October is, um, you know, memories of the damned. Mm. And one of the themes is we'll know the damned in, in heaven. We'll know them. Because how else would the, would the sufferers be vindicated? They have to know that that man who did those evil things got dealt with. Mm. It did get dealt with. Because think about the martyrs that cried out for, for vengeance, and they're told to wait a little while longer, and then the vengeance will come. Mm. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay, and you'll see it when I do it. You will see the repayment. Not in this life, but in eternity you'll see it. Mm. Well, Andy, I have one final question yep. for you, and then any last thoughts you have for us mm -hmm. on this uh, passage we've looked at, or the mm -hmm. first or second chapters of Peter, anything you'd like. But how does Christ healing us of our mm -hmm. sin and our wandering yeah. and his role as the shepherd and overseer of our souls enable us really to obey Peter's difficult commands yeah. in this section? Oh, boy, I just keep coming again and again to this. This is, this is worth its weight in gold, the therapeutic model of salvation. Mm -hmm. By his wounds, we have been healed. Healed from what? In this text, it tells you right now. Healed from sin. Yeah. You're healed from wandering. Wandering is sick. It's a sickness. It's a disease to wander from God. Yeah. All right? Isn't it wonderful that Jesus, the physician of our souls, has come to heal us so that we stop wandering, we stop drifting away from the shepherd and overseer of our souls, and we, and we do right things. That's Peter's consistent message here to his aliens and stranger brothers and sisters in Christ. Do the right thing. Do good deeds. Shine your light in these hard circumstances because you yourself, as Christians, have been healed from your wandering. You've been healed from sin. So don't sin anymore. You've returned now to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You now are freed from that wandering wickedness of lawlessness to do good things. Mm, I love that. It reminds me of the line in Come Thou Fount, prone to wander, Lord, mm -hmm. I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it. Seal it for thy course mm -hmm. above. May that be true of us. May we entrust ourselves uh, to the one who judges justly. Well, this has been episode four in the book of First Peter, and we want to invite you to join us again next time for episode five, entitled Wives and Husbands, where we'll discuss First Peter chapter three, verses one through seven. Thank you for listening to the Two Journeys podcast, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.